Welcome to Off the Bench with Danny Cannell. Danny Cannell. Back to throw versus Danny. Pete is tight end. And Raja Bell. Bell has done three three. 22 to Raja. It's all the future of football right before your eyes. Just yell it out, man. He can't guard me. What's up? Welcome to the show. Uh, you know what? You NBA guys are lucky. You know, I like a number of reasons. Like, I can just go down the list, Gary. Here we go. All right, yeah, all right, yeah. money that's out there. But you know what else you didn't ever have to deal with? What's that? Weather conditions. Correct. Like, that's that's just not Correct. fair. Like, you guys always had it 72 and, Choose like, your sport perfect. wisely, my friend. When you played in Denver, did the altitude even yeah, affect you? it did, like, yes. you probably had some Denver, oxygen pumped Denver in. Denver and Salt Lake City. Had perfect conditions yeah. out there. Because <laughs> um, last night, I thought it did impact the World Series. I thought it made an, a difference on the pitchers. I thought, because it was cold. Yeah. All day it was raining it was cold and wet and damp and i thought that impacted the pitchers that we heard about this pitching matchup of uh clayton kershaw versus chris sale and i did not think they they were themselves i i uh so that i did the fir- first ever in the bell household i streamed baseball last night because nice. yeah I, the tv was on my mother-in-law was watching something and i had to be doing homework with the boys so i actually sat there and watched the world series game on my phone and it looked cold yeah like, not only for the players but for the fans and i didn't really have any like any frame of reference for that being an, an indoor sport, except I took my son up to New York uh, last week and he trained with the quarterback guy and they had to be outside. Mm-hmm. And man, he struggled. Right. Like my son did. He was cold. He was blowing in his hands. Like his ball wasn't going nearly as far as it goes when he's here. And so like just recently, I have some experience with that. So it looked like it would be a hard task for pitchers to succeed. Trust me. Your son felt exactly like I did when I was at Giant <laughs> Stadium playing in one of the windiest, right. coldest yeah. stadiums that are in the, uh, the league. All right. Let's bring in Jonah Carey right now to help us break down game one from the uh, World Series last night. Uh, Jonah, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for getting up early. I love the uh, lid. I love the look, man. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for having me, fellas. By the way, with weather and basketball, I should point out that if you're an old school NBA fan, you will remember Boston Celtics games in about May, let's say in the 80s, Red Orback cranking the uh, AC right off so that it was like 112 degrees in there. Celtics are used to this stuff. Lakers or whoever would come in and they would completely wilt. Celtics notoriously would play tricks with other teams. Very, very hot in there. So don't tell me there's no weather in the NBA. True that. <laughs> no, notorious for having a hot box. Right? Like I love, hey, yeah. remember the Spurs against LeBron a few years ago? That's the cramp game? Like maybe they did something too. Uh, make sure you check Jonah out on Twitter at Jonah Carey. He also is the host of the Jonah Carey podcast, one of the best podcasts out there where this last episode he uh, chatted with uh, Hall of Famer Trevor Hoffman about the World Series on this week's episode. Make sure you go check this out. Uh, all right. Last night we talked, we saw Clayton Kershaw against Chris Sale. It was billed as these guys who were, you know, shut down kings. They're unbelievable at their craft, but didn't have it. Why do you think that was the case? You know, you mentioned the weather hypothesis. I think it's certainly possible, but to me, I look at it as kind of, unfortunately, the regression in skills. Kershaw, Used to throw 95 consistently. He's sitting at 90 or 91 right now. And so you've got a guy who doesn't throw as hard as he used to, and now he's got to be perfect with the command. And one thing about trying to be perfect in sports, it does not work. I guess it works if you're MJ and you're prime. But other than that, it doesn't work. And the problem is you end up nibbling, you end up missing. And he was giving up hits on high pitches. We saw so many pitches, four, five, six pitches. They were really hammered because they were higher than he expected. So that didn't really work. And then with Chris Sale, he pitched a little bit better, but Sale's a guy who used to sit 98-99, and he has not been there recently. He's been much lower. He hasn't had quite the command. has to do with an injury. He had a shoulder injury back in August, and then he had this stomach problem, which, you know, if it's really, really bad, can affect you for days, maybe even sometimes a couple weeks. So, yeah, I think the weather might have been a part of it. Two tough lineups, no question about it. 
but they have to face facts with Sale temporarily and maybe with Kershaw permanently. They're not who they used to be. Admittedly, I'm not watching every Chris Sale start through the season. I know his stuff is filthy. I know what he brings. But I did think he looked skinny last night. Do you think he looked weaker from that virus, or is that his typical physique? Uh, he's very skinny. He came into the big leagues about six six, and he probably weighed about a buck seventy, which you know that's pretty skinny. And maybe he's put on a few pounds since then, but not much. It's always been that way. I mean, even look if you look at his mugshot, that's a skinny guy. You know, he's yeah. that's what he is. And listen, other skinny guys have fared well. Pedro Martinez famously, infamously, got traded to these guys to the Montreal Expos because Tommy Lasorda was convinced that a dude who weighed about 146 pounds could not handle the rigors of Major League Baseball. Pedro Martinez proved him wrong. So, yeah, Sale was one of those guys, too, where he wasn't anything beefy at all, and people kept urging him to put on weight, and he didn't. It's possible he might have been a little bit weaker in this start, but this is pretty much who he is. He's just a very... Anyway. Sounds like me coming out of high school. It's right. six, six five one seventy five. <laughs> I think we all were that. Way. Just <laughs> try to pound pizzas, right? Try to put on weight, just couldn't do it. Um, hey Jonah, let me ask you because I watched, um, and it felt like it felt like the Dodgers kept up at least uh, for a while with the Red Sox with their bats, right? Machado had you know knocked in the three runs, and it felt like they were there, and then all of a sudden the floodgates kind of open, and Boston does what they do. So, do you imagine this to be a theme for the series? Can they keep up with them in terms of hitting? It's possible. You know, one thing to look at with this matchup, people look at 108 wins with the Red Sox, 92 the Dodgers. They say, wow, what a mismatch. The Red Sox were the best team, clearly. The Dodgers were good, but not that good. So there's something called run differential, which is very simple. It's how many runs did you score versus how many you allowed. We see it now in other sports. People talk about point differential in football is, yeah, they went 10-6 and six last year, but they were scored as many as they allowed. And so let's look at that. Basketball, same thing. You know, you're looking at differential as an underlying stat. By that stat, the Red Sox were about a 105-win team, if you extrapolate the numbers. And the Dodgers were a 103-win team. The Dodgers were extremely unlucky this year in converting that stuff. They'd win a lot of games 10 to nothing and lose a lot of games 3 to 2. So overall, you could say their offense is quite good. By their component stats, whether it's pitching, whether it's hitting, whether it's defense, they rate very, very highly. They just would get into situations where runners on second with two outs, they couldn't cash him. Something would go wrong, and it wouldn't necessarily work out. Bullpen would screw up, too. My dog approves of this as well. <laughs> this is where, and by the way, my cat's name is Pedro Martinez, and he might walk on the table in front of us at some point. So stay tuned for that. But, uh, yeah, so that's what we're talking about. I don't think the Dodgers are overmatching the series at all. All of my CBS baseball colleagues, I think, I'm pretty sure, unanimously had the Red Sox in five. I have the Red Sox in seven. I still think Boston's going to win this series, but I think the Dodgers are going to be right there. It's possible they're all right and I'm all wrong, but so far this was a closely contested game right up until we got to Ryan Madsen coming in, and then, as he said, the floodgates open. Alex Cora has been a magician throughout the whole playoffs. He's pulling the right strings at exactly the right time. Last night, another example, pinch hitting uh, Eduardo Nunez. He comes through with the home run. How impressed have you been with Alex Cora as a rookie manager this season in the playoffs? I need to give you some backstory here. So I used to work at, uh, let's say, the four-letter place, which we shall not mention by name. And uh, <laughs> Exactly, Danny, you've been there. And uh, it, it was a, um, there was a show called Baseball Tonight, still exists. And I worked there, and uh, I was on that show for, uh, what, three years, and Alex Cora was my colleague. And we would inevitably do what was called the one-and-a-hook show, 1.30 in the morning. So you show up in the green room at 6 o'clock, and you eat, and you eat, 
And then you eat some more, you watch some more games, and you bond. So for seven or eight hours, I would sit with this guy night after night, him and usually Adnan Vert, terrific uh, broadcaster, and we would just talk baseball. And so, you know, normally I wouldn't have much personal experience with any manager, but it was clear talking to Alex that he was a student of the game and really got it, but also was able to connect with players. And I think that baseball, more than football, more than basketball, because football, I think you could X and O your way to victory. You know, you got somebody like Belichick, he's been a legend. You look at Popovich, granted he connects with players, but he's been a legend. Baseball, most managers are about the same now. There's no dunderheads. They're not bunting with the bases loaded or whatever. They kind of understand what to do. It's a matter of getting guys motivated and pointing in the right direction. And the Red Sox, of course, made changes in the offseason. They picked up J.D. Martinez. But for the most part, this is largely the same team as last year, except that they seem to be more cohesive and playing better and what have you. And I think you can give some of the credit to Cora. He really connects in a good way. And not for nothing, by the way, I would add that teams are overtly now looking for bilingual managers because one-third of the game's population is of Latin descent. And it makes sense that you should, you know, be able to connect with guys in their mother tongue if possible. So here's Cora, perfectly bilingual. He can connect with his Latin players very well. He can connect with any players, whatever he wants. And he's smart. I love it. I'm very happy for him. Uh, really, really great. And the Red Sox are playing excellent baseball. I know it's blasphemy for me as a Yankee fan to do this, but ha- having known Alex Cora as well, he used to stop by our studio and ask about the Miami Hurricanes. Mm-hmm. Another reason you should root for him, Raja. Oh, true. Is he is a great dude and he is a people person. So, uh, it's a lot of fun to watch them play. Game two, we got Ryu versus David Price. David Price seems to have gotten the postseason, you know, woes off his shoulder, you know, with that impressive performance last time he was out. He was 0 for 9 previous to that. What do you think plays out in this game, too? You know, as a numbers guy, I'm not as invested in narratives as some other people. It's sometimes it could be in your head. I've never taken the mound in the LCS. Maybe I would be feel under pressure if I was 0 for 9 or whatever. But to me, the issue with David Price, for the last little while anyway, has been that he might not necessarily have the stuff to be a dominant starter in the postseason, which is crazy for a guy who has a $217 million contract. But the issue with Price talked about Kershaw, we talked about Sale, David Price used to throw 96 with ease, and he would paint the corners, and he could really do that, and now he sits at about 93, and he doesn't throw sliders, and he doesn't throw curveballs, he throws pretty much all straight stuff, which can work, but I mean, you have to be absolutely perfect, not only with location, but with velocity, and so, yeah, his last start was great, he went six innings, they're all shutout innings, nine strikeouts, no walks, three hits, that was great, but that's sort of atypical of where Price is at in general in his career, and then when you have diminished stuff and you're going up against lineups that are much better because it's their playoff teams as opposed to the Baltimore Orioles, then you can run into trouble too. So I don't want to say that, oh, well, Price can't hack it or whatever. I think that's kind of an easy explanation that doesn't really cut to it, and I don't buy it. And we're not mind readers. I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should say, wow, did you see LeBron miss those two free throws the other night? He choked. I don't buy that. I think LeBron just missed free throws in the same way that I think David Price might just not be as good as he used to be. And so even though he had that one good start recently, in general, he's not an elite pitcher anymore. That's why he's had trouble. Yeah, but you know how we do it in sports. Every opinion guy is going to write a piece saying he's a choke artist, can't get it done the post. It's just kind of what happens in sports today, which is unfortunate, especially if you're players. And I think it does bother players a ton. Uh, Jonah, thanks for getting up with us. Your lid, by the way, the old school Montreal Expos, I think it's the second best logo outside the Milwaukee Brewers. It is. And by the way, I grew up in Montreal and I still didn't know that even though it looks like ELB, that's an M for Montreal. That is very hard. (laughs) 
<laughs> nice. Uh, great stuff. Thanks for getting up, man. Really appreciate it. Make sure you go check out his podcast, the Jonah Carey Pod. Uh, Trevor Hoffman on this week as a guest. Thanks again, Jonah. Appreciate it. All right, let's do some NFL. I, I want to ask something real quick. What? No, and, and this is very rare, right? Okay. This is the first time. I want to follow up on baseball. Oh, all right. Because my Jonah was talking about these guys usually having 99 stuff and then being in the mid-90s. My eyeball before he said that last night as I'm watching the gun was like, those numbers don't seem like elite pitching numbers. And I attributed some of it to the, the cold. Weather, yeah. Um, but my question is, at what point in the 90s does your stuff go from like – Tough to like, I can't hit that. Like, cause it's, it's, you're talking about like 93s, which seems like I can't see that that to like 99. There's a couple different things to it. I think there's some guys that can throw, they can work around 92, 93, but they have movement. So it's really hard to hit. Yeah. Okay. There are other guys that have movement and get up like Chris Sale can get up 96, 97. That's the, that's the upper echelon of where you're even, you're, Big league hitters are having trouble right. keeping up the over the ninety five. Yeah. I think over ninety five is probably the barometer. I mean okay. shoot uh what's his name? Evaldi the other night hit one oh two. Yeah, I mean that's stupid. Like when you're like, triple digits, like even exactly. an idiot like me can be like, all right, I mean, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. The thing that's been weird about Chris Sale is the back half of the season, because he had some issues with his shoulder going on, so they actually put him on the DL for a while. When he came back, he was only throwing like 88. Yeah, yeah. And then you're right. like, yeah. what's going on? And people were really worried about him. And then he's pretty much silenced those as far as the velocity goes. Mm-hmm. Then he just didn't have it. And I think both him and Kershaw were affected by right. the weather for sure. Yeah, right. All right. Bell's bottom five. <clears throat> the bell bottoms, as I like to call them. The worst teams in the NFL. Let's see your Yeah, list. I mean, it's pretty simple. Everybody knows. You got the, you got the Raiders at one and five. And I think... Some of that's been cleared up by what John Gruden and, and Camp have started to do, right? Like they're getting rid of uh, the Bills just because that's kind of messy situation at two and five. Who who are they rolling? Are they rolling out um, Josh Allen again? Has he been? I don't inserted? even know what's going on out there. Correct. Uh, the Forty ers unfortunately, the Jimmy G situation just put them in a in an impossible situation this year. Um, and then I have who else do I have? I have the Cardinals, the Giants. So the Giants would be one and six. I don't know why I have them above the Cardinals because I think they're equally as bad. But right. both teams are one and six, which takes us to like the larger conversation yeah. uh, about the Giants and what they're starting to do now, a la Oakland. Yeah, right. As they cleaned out, Eli Apple got moved right yesterday yep. for. Um, yep, he was moved to the Saints for the Saints for what a fourth and a. a yeah, it was kind of, so the, so the Giants have had a little bit of a history with Eli Apple and it's not a good one. He was calling out Ben McAdoo last year. He was calling out some of the guys in the locker room, wasn't showing up for meetings and like it, it got weird with his family. His mom, who I actually know, she did some stuff in broadcasting and she's very outspoken. Right. She got involved and like no, like nobody liked it. Landon Collins, who's a safety in the secondary with him, who's a great pro. Like he's a professional dude. In fact, when I was at the Super Bowl in Minneapolis last year, yeah. I got up early for a workout at the gym. Landon Collins was in there getting a workout in. And this is like the Super Bowl. If you're not in it, guys are partying late night. Correct. He was up. To, I was in bed early. Yeah. My workout in too. Like a couple of pros in there just getting a workout pros. in. But he called him out publicly in the press, Eli Apple, and had to apologize for it later. So it's just been a bad fit. He hasn't fit in that locker room well. And I think the Giants were just looking to dump him specifically. So you have insight, obviously, into the Giants. You're speaking about, you've spoken about the Mara family. Yeah. And, and is there a point this year? Where apparently there's been interest in, in Janoris Jenkins. And do you get to a point where maybe you, you start to have the fire sale and start to accumulate picks? Cause you're going, look, you're going to need a quarterback. Uh, it's right. obvious now whether, you know, we agree or disagree on, on where Eli is now. That's coming up in the future. Um, and you're going to have to kind of retool, right? You have some glaring needs there in New York. Is that a possibility I with would, that family or that's I not would happening? I picture the Maras as old school as it gets. Like right. Wellington Mara, who's passed away. 
was one of the original owners. In His the name NFL. was Wellington Mara. Yeah, that's old school. He was awesome game. though. Yeah. He would actually walk around practice just like the field was his exercise. Yeah. And like not a lot of owners watch it. He would be almost every day out there just walking, watching practice, right. you know. Um, but they're an old school mentality. They have a lot of pride. I think they would never let on that they were tanking or having a fire sale. I think this move specifically was for a purpose. It's before the trade deadline. He was a first round pick who's pretty much been a bust for the Giants. Yeah. They want to get something. I think the the return they got on their <laughs> investment shows that. Like they couldn't get much in return. Right. So they're saying, all right, we're going to move on. But – I think the impact of analytics, the, what you're talking about, needing a quarterback, I think they'd be foolish if they didn't look at what was out there and say, look, the odds of us even making the playoffs are slim to none. Let's start looking a little bit to the future, and yet we can still compete. We can yeah. be in there the and have effort in the games. The narrative doesn't have to be that you're tanking. Right. right? Like You can be positioning yourself to, for, for, for future success and just getting rid of some of the weight around the fringes that, that really isn't helping you right now anyway. You know? Right. I was just interested because so, you, know, you yeah. had a little insight. So in, I think, yeah. I think they, I think that's, that's kind of the approach that we'll take. And it wouldn't surprise me if Janoris Jenkins gets moved either, either as JLC is reporting. Yep. I always, like, if you really, like, if you wanted to send a message, if they floated Odell Beckham for one, and it's been proposed by some people saying it's been, you know, hey, it's been a mess and the Mara family's upset and they feel duped, which I think they do. What would you have to get for all that? Of a sudden, I mean, a couple ones, I think. If you had Amari Cooper go for a first rounder to the Dallas Cowboys, who's, you know, he's a decent receiver, but he's not top three. It'd probably be a couple ones. I would not cut bait with that. I, I, you wouldn't? He's I wouldn't, explosive. I wouldn't either, but if, if you're the Mara family and you're feeling like, man, we just paid this guy. He told us he was going to be one thing and then he's going back to being exactly what he's been his whole career. I wouldn't be what like, 147 a yard a game receiver, right? Like that's what that's what it is. I agree. So I, it would be it would be a jaw dropper, shot yeah, 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 yeah. blockbuster trade if it happened. The other thing is Eli Manning. Like there's been speculation. I don't know where it comes from. I think it's just writers. I don't think it's any inside sources or actual talks that have taken place that have said, "Hey, move Eli Manning to Jacksonville, bring Blake Point, like maybe even quarterback for quarterback." Be, he's got less weapons better. in Jacksonville than he's got in New York. Exactly. He would be. It'd probably be just an older version of Blake Bortles that you would get in Jacksonville if you made that move for yeah, Manning. Be even further exposed if he went to Jacksonville. Right, right. In any case, all these teams are a complete mess. The Giants, Pat Shermer, we saw them on Monday Night Football. We broke that whole thing down. It's a mess, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. Uh, we got to do some NBA. Let's do that next because your boy Joel Embiid is my boy. Yeah, that's your boy. <laughs> I want to I hear your thoughts on him because okay. he's out there flopping, and uh, we got to get. Um, we're going to get James Herbert here, our NBA okay. insider. He's going to help us break down some of the NBA action. I want to hear your thoughts as well. Coming up next and Off the Bench. All right, another fun night in the NBA. If you like offense, because we haven't seen much defense played, another overtime thriller. Blake Griffin, this is uh, the Blake Griffin. On the ball. Yeah, he dropped 50 uh, last night in their game against the Pistons. On the top, they got him doing ball handling and, and playmaking. I like that, though. Yeah, they're expanding his game a little bit, like working it all around. He's yeah, always, a little mid-post work. He's always been a guy that I look at as one of the most physically gifted guys. Right. And I didn't know if he'd hone his game to this level, but he's starting to work on something. He is. Like, he's scoring from all different levels there. He's, he's up top with the ball in ISOs. He's on the mid-post. Tough shot by J.J. Reddick there. Yeah, that was pretty impressive for sure. With your uh, your boy, wow. Joel Embiid, did you see the movie pulled with Andre Drummond? No. So he he got him. Ooh. Yeah, Blake's just going off. He would have dumped that three years ago, though. Yeah, right? He, he had a little that. more up, <laughs> a, little more, a little more left in those legs as they are now. Uh, and clutch. Like, hey, made the free throw. Good to see that. Uh, 
Yeah, so Joel Embiid coming there for the lost the game, but during the game, massive flop right. against Andre Drummond. Then he comes right up and he's like, "Get him out of here! Get him out of here!" Got a second second technical, and Drummond got ejected from the game. Really, basically off of a flop. That it was all like it was a big time. And Joel Embiid's about as dramatic as they come yep. out there. I don't love. I liked him at first because all the social media interaction. He seems like a likable guy. It's too much. I think quickly he's going to become turn. He's going to get turned on by not only the players. I think the players are already kind of tired of him, but the yeah. fans. Yeah, he's too much. He's he's taking. He takes it over the top for players. And when you start when you start dealing with dudes' livelihoods, and that's that was always my beef with like a Manu Ginobili at times, like with all the flopping. Yeah, I had no problem with you trying to draw fouls and stuff. But then when you try to tell the refs like somebody tried to hurt you or you're trying to get people kicked out of games. Like that crosses like a competitive line for me. Right. You want to draw a foul? Cool. Don't try to get me kicked out of a game on a, on a damn flop. Right. I, right. I have a problem with that. And people will beef with Joel Embiid about that. Fans and players alike. Right. It'll be interesting to see how his development continues there uh, in Philly. But he did come out with the L in the end. That's yeah. Like, you can do all that stuff. Auto lie. You got to win. Right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Let's bring in our guy, uh, uh, James Herbert for our NBA focus. Follow him on Twitter at outside the NBA on Twitter. He's our CBS sports NBA writer. James, man, what's going on? Thanks so much for having me, guys. Uh, so we talked about the offensive fireworks that we've seen so far earlier this season. It's totally common now to see these games. Granted, they're going to overtime. We had 140 the other night with the Lakers game. Last night, we're just watching that game unfold, 132, 133. Where is the defense? What's going on in the NBA? Yeah, I think the offense is definitely ahead of the defense right now. I, I think there is a number of factors here. I, look, we've seen sort of the, the evolution of offenses and defenses throughout the NBA over the last 10, 15 years. I mean, Raja knows uh, very well what Mike D'Antoni did uh, to sort of revolutionize NBA offenses, and he's sort of seen it springboard uh, since then with the amount of three-pointers, the amount of spacing, I think. Last year, uh, things sort of really changed when teams started switching so much more. One through four, one through five became not just uh, an occasional thing, but something really normal, and I think you've seen come into this year really reacting to that, playing a lot of five-out lineups, uh, having a lot of guys out there that can be playmakers, and running fewer sets and just sort of letting guys play basketball and letting guys uh, sort of be themselves. And, and, and if they're attacking switches, if they're attacking mismatches, or if they're just spreading the floor and letting the talented ball handlers create, I think that's a really difficult thing for even the most sophisticated defenses to stop. I'm just, I'm really concerned, James, and I don't mean to sound like like this old curmudgeon, right? But like you, you kind of alluded to one of my major beefs with the trend is like there's no offense being run anymore. We're in these five out situations. It's positionless, which I'm okay with. But you know, I work with high school kids and I work with youth, and now you're talking about changing the way you have to teach the game fundamentally, not just like bigs being guards and so on and so forth. But you're talking about teaching, you know, guys that come down and toe the line on 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 uh, fast breaks, on three on, on twos, three on ones. And so, like, I, I am worried about the game forever changing. Like, I, do, I don't know that this is great for basketball. What's your what's your take on it? I know analytically it makes sense, but I just don't believe this to be the right move for basketball. Yeah, I do think it, it reaches a point where as much as we all love freedom of movement, as much as we all love scoring, it will start to turn people off if you're regularly seeing – these 130-point, 140-point games, I think there is a tipping point, right, where we'll see, we'll see a lot more people reacting like you are. But, but I think there's also sort of, like, we don't always know what the consequences are going to be. Like, I remember um, when the defensive rule changes came in and people uh, started playing zone, there were a bunch of coaches and players that came out and said, this is going to ruin the game. This is not going to have the desired effect. Um, but you sort of had to see the ripple effects come from there. Like, one player I talked to, 
uh, in the preseason when a lot of people were complaining about uh, all these off-the-ball fouls being called because the referees have clearly wanted to increase freedom movement again, but this time focusing off the ball rather than just on-ball hand-checking. One thing he said was that for, for good defenders could eventually be a good thing, right? Because you have to actually uh, learn how to guard your man. You have to do it without fouling, and you have to be able to move your feet if you are skilled, if you are long, if you do have good anticipation. So that will separate you from the guys that are holding and clutching and grabbing and being physical uh, in a way that, that doesn't really require the same amount of skill. So um, maybe from a longer-term perspective, you could zoom out and say this will encourage players to be more fundamentally sound defensively, but I think in the short term, like I, I totally get the word concerned. Um, you know, it's interesting you brought up a point because I said like a few years ago when, when, uh, you know, they were making these changes and offenses were, were already starting to evolve. It really did, uh, put a premium on guys who could defend, right? And then some of those guys started analytically to be more appreciated and they got paid as three and D guys, which wasn't really the case when I played. So I could see that effect. And it brings me to another, like, I've always thought that once, if you can get another transcendent big, like someone who can really anchor um, an offense that you could build around um, and slow the game down to some degree. That would be the answer to maybe making some of these teams scale back the small ball and and um, the run and gun type of play. Like they'd have to match down with you if you will. Do you think we're past that point? Are scores too high for a big man to ever really affect the game again? I think big men can absolutely affect the game. I mean, just, just look at a guy like Joel Embiid, like when he is really going on the low post, like the guy, he, he looks like Shaq. But at the same time, it's like you know, all these guys have to do different things too. Like they have to switch on the perimeter. Like most of these guys have to stretch the floor. There are exceptions to that. But I, I do think, yeah, I, I'm not sure that the revolution um, in terms of just having a dominant big man is ever going to sort of go the other way to the point where everybody's looking for like traditional center. I just think defenses have changed. It, it's not as simple as it as it used to be where you're either guarding him one-on-one or you're sending a double team and guys are open. Like, defenses are so much more sophisticated than they used to be. The, the one thing that I was sort of interested in um, last season and, and sort of the second half of the season before was how the Pelicans would have evolved with DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis as their sort of two-headed monster in the middle. And we didn't really get to see that from a long-term perspective. And when they replaced Cousins, with Nico Miritic, uh, just just basically a shooter that allowed AD um, to, to dominate the, the center position. They actually got better, so so it's a little weird. I, I would be intrigued to see someone try to sort of buck this trend and do it the other way. Uh, but but I think honestly, even the most dominant centers that we see in the game today, they're not playing the same way centers did 20 years ago. James, in the preseason, it feels like it felt like the uh, the trendy pick was the Celtics to come out of the East with Kyrie Irving getting healthy, Gordon Hayward coming back. They had all the young talent last year, and it feels like we might have been sleeping a little bit on the Raptors, who had the best record in the Eastern Conference last year. They get better adding uh, Kawhi Leonard. Uh, have you changed at all in your picks, or did you think they were going to be this good coming into the season so far? Um, well, I thought the Raptors were going to be this good. Like I, I said all along, I thought these teams were like one A and one B. In the East, I don't think we've seen the best of the Celtics yet. So I think after a few games to go and say, oh, the Raptors are now the, the clear-cut favorites, that would be making the same mistake as going into the year and saying it's definitely the Celtics. Right? Like I think both these teams are so, so talented, uh, and the Raptors have just come together really quickly, and the Celtics have had some growing pains. And part of that is natural. I mean, there's, there's different things that these rosters are dealing with. Uh, I think the Raptors have a more clearly defined pecking order 
uh, than Boston does, and Gordon Hayward clearly isn't himself yet. Irving didn't start off the season super strong, and, and they're trying to build back their defensive identity uh, with with a sort of different uh, different lineup out there. I think the Raptors have obviously, I mean, for my money, they've been the most impressive team in the NBA this season, given everything, the coaching change, and the grading Kawhi, everything else. I just think the way that they're playing, the aggressiveness that they have at both ends has been uh, really, really impressive. But we'll be talking about Boston the same way. Whether it's a few weeks from now, whether it's a month from now, I don't know. But I know that team is just insanely talented. That Raptors team has been interesting to me because I thought that chemistry would take just a little longer uh, to develop there. Uh, but they do have, like, I discounted how, how much Danny Green would mean to them, like how much the guys around the fringes, Patrick, I mean, uh, Pascal Siakam and, and uh, Nolan, uh, whatever his name is, came from from UCLA. But any the, the my point would be, what have they done that would make me trust them, I guess, James, like down the stretch? Like, uh, you know, they're a team that, typically will jump out like they they're one of the top teams in the east and yet they get in the playoff situations and 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 they haven't lived up to the hype so like is there any insight there do you know nick nurse like does he have a better feel for that um than they've had in the past yeah i mean i i've talked to nick a little bit i i did a story on him over the summer interviewed him in las vegas i've had some conversations with him when he was an assistant i think he does bring something a little bit different he's really going to experiment a lot this season. He's going to change around the starting lineup. I think it's been interesting just watching their first four games uh, than sometimes having different, different starting lineups in these different games depending on the matchup. That was something that Dwayne Casey was reluctant to do uh, when he was in charge of the team. And, and Nick doesn't care. He'll start a different team in the second half than he did in the first half. He'll start Pascal Siakam some nights. He'll, he's basically shifted Serge Ibaka to full-time center uh, so he so he can be more effective there, I think, than, than he's been at Power Four the past couple of years. And you've seen it. You've seen it. It's not just the additions. Like you've seen TJ Miles uh, look like he's in better shape and more aggressive than the past. You've seen the young guys getting better. You've seen Serge Ibaka, I think, looking better than he has since he since he's been in Toronto. Um, I think they're just getting so much production. It's a really deep roster. And then as for the question of what is different now, what is different in the playoff time, I think we've all sort of learned to say. Uh, we, we can't trust this, this Raptors team in the regular season, but I, I, I'm not really feeling the same way about this team just because you now have a genuine superstar in Kawhi Leonard that's a different level of player uh, than DeMar DeRozan. They can walk into any playoff series in the East and at least tell themselves that they have the best player uh, on the floor. I'm not sure if that's absolutely true if you're playing, say, if you like Milwaukee, but I think there's an argument there uh, at least, and I think the defense um, I think has a chance to be really special. Last year they were like top six in defensive rating, but against the elite teams, they they were one of the worst uh, defensive teams. You saw that sort of bite them in the playoffs. I think now uh, with Danny Green and Kawhi in the starting lineup, with all the versatility that they have, they have a chance to actually stop the best teams in the league and really give them problems. Kawhi, obviously, as a guy that can really affect the best players in the world, uh, but just beyond that, I think they're a stronger defensive unit than they were last year. All right, James, good stuff. Should be fun to watch the back half of the season, playoffs. This time, at least they won't have to go through LeBron James, the Eastern Conference that wide helps. open. Uh, make sure you follow James Herbert at Outside the NBA. Appreciate that. We did your bell bottoms earlier in the show. Yeah, yeah. You got to do my top ten. Because <laughs> we have to? there is a major have to. shakeup at the top. Okay. You're not going to believe it. All right. Coming up next, off the bench. You ever looked at your credit card statement and been shocked by the interest rate? Yeah, they're off the charts. That and when my wife goes shopping, whoa, I don't even want to see the balance. 
Did you know you could actually roll all of your credit card debt into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate? Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89 APR with auto pay. That's lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. Here's a fun fact too. Lightstream plants a tree with every loan they fund. Their website's super easy to use, easy to apply, easy to sign in. It's cake. It's simple. You have to do it. My listeners will get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low interest rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash bench, L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash bench. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash bench for more information. All right, let's do my top 10. We saw the bell bottoms yeah. earlier in the show. Couple shakeups. Rams number one. Okay. Most balanced team. Jared Goff, Sean McVay on the offensive side of the ball. They got Sue. They got Aaron Donald, best player on the defensive side of the ball. They got both sides wrapped up. Now the Patriots don't have the best record, but they showed us on the field that they were better than the Chiefs. Marginally. 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 So yeah. I think it is at home. But, I think but I'll of, give you that. A lot of people would have beef with me having the Patriots over the Chiefs because the Chiefs have all this firepower, but they are still Dead last in total defense, the Chiefs. Like, they've got to give me more balance for me to buy in with them. The Saints I've got up there at four, although they got a little bit lucky going into Baltimore and uh, had Justin Tucker missed the field goal at the end of that, or the extra point at the end of that game. Otherwise, who knows how that would have played out. And I'm still riding with my man Kirk Cousins in there at uh, five, two, and one. Just can't they, shake the Kirk Cousins. But he goes out there and they just handed hand another L to another. Like they're, yeah, they I, look good. And he looks good. Like I don't mean, exactly. I mean, I, we, we joke, but he does look good. He looks really good. The difference for me in the Rams and the Saints, cause they're, and I do think there's a big drop off between the top four. Okay. Really it's Rams, Patriots, Chiefs, Saints. Like those feel like the AFC, NFC matchups that you're probably going to see. They do feel like they're just at another level than some of these other teams. I feel like there's four teams at the top. Your five teams at the bottom. Yes. Maybe another couple in there. And then there's about 20 teams, 18 to 20 teams that are all kind of even. And you could see any one of them raising to the level, or you could see a bunch of teams that end up season eight, eight, nine, and seven that get wild card spots that get a chance and maybe they get hot at the right time, but they just don't look as complete as those teams at the top of my list. Um, I can't really argue with that. I mean, I, I, I do agree that the, after the Saints, you have, a, a bit of drop off. Although I think the Saints, even for me, if you slid them in the middle of the pack, I'd be okay with that. But I want to talk about a team that's in the middle of the pack. They're in your, your top ten, but they feel like they're trending, and it, it, it's the Chargers. Like yeah. I don't, I don't know why. And really, I mean, I'm not a purist with football. I didn't grow up studying football, but when I watch them, um, it just feels like they could wind up being one of those top four or five teams that could really be a threat. Um, to be there at the end. You are right, because they have an outstanding quarterback, Hall of Fame quarterback in Phillip Rivers. Their defense is nasty. They're going to get Joey Bosa back and healthy, and they've got like all kind of contribution on the defensive side of the ball. So I agree with they're They're on the cusp. Like I right. would say they're really close to getting in there. They've been handling their business, flying under the radar. They've traditionally been a team that starts off really slow. You know why I think they get overlooked? It's because they're the other team in L.A. Yeah. Like everybody's talking about the Rams from L.A., and I think that the Chargers are just kind of happily just flying right under the radar, just kind of taking care of business. And I I agree with you. I think they'll because I don't they're not going to win their division. That's going to go to the Chiefs because I don't see the Chiefs slowing down anytime soon. But they could be that team that's a wild card team that nobody wants to play right. in the first round of the playoffs uh, without question. When you look at them, uh, you know who's you know who's not in my top ten that I actually think 
has a chance to do some damage. The Falcons. It. We talked a little bit about yeah. them yesterday. They could, they're a team. If they get right defensively, which they looked a little bit better, they could have a chance. If they, if they get, like Grady Jarrett had two sacks the other night and they've been atrocious on the defensive side of the ball, but offensively with Matt Ryan put up the type of numbers that he is, they could be a team again. All these teams at the top would not want to play a right. team like the Falcons or a team like the Chargers, uh, without question. The Packers also are a team. Anytime you have Aaron Rodgers, it's just you have to, he can raise the level of play. They just, they seem like a little bit of a mess right now. They're a mess, but whenever you have a player like that in a lot of sport, like you don't want that matchup, even in basketball. Like you got a guy like Giannis, even if he had no team around him, that's a hard draw for a team in the playoffs. You don't want to have to go up against a guy who can just beat you by himself, you know? Right. Um, let me ask you about the, the Falcons though, because I agree with you. Like, you know, they're a really tough team and defensively they've been decimated. So as they get those guys back, uh, logically you'd, you'd have to think that they'd continue, you know, to move up the board and, and, and sneak into your top 10, right? But I do feel like, and I harp on it a lot, for them to be at their best, they have to figure out that Julio Jones situation yeah. in the red zone. Because it's like you, you talk about defensively teams in the NFL, you hear it all the time, the bend don't break. Right? So they're going to let him have the 145 yards between the 20 and the 20. Take them. They're yeah. yours. But can you convert that in the red zone? And they haven't been bad, I don't think, in red zone efficiency overall. Right. But where they really struggled last year, they have a better grasp of it. But you're right. If they want to become a team that can compete with those yeah, guys, you, they have to figure out a way to get Julio Jones uh, the ball in the red zone. That division, by the way, the NFC South, which I thought coming into the season was, and it was last year, proved out the toughest division, got off to a little bit of a rocky start with Atlanta struggling. Tampa kind of had issues. You know, what's going on with Jameis Winston? All of a sudden, you look at it again, and you're like, these are some really good teams in this division yeah, what you, where it's going to be a just a bloodbath. What do you make of the Panthers? Talk to me about my man Cam, because he was – Atrocious through a half of football, like. But then they were down seventeen nothing in the fourth quarter, and he see this is what frustrates me about Cam Newton. He made some unbelievable throws in that game. There was one where they were like on the forty, and he gets hit right as he throws it. He threw it like with both feet off the ground. Yes, and he got drilled like right as he threw it, hit the guy right in stride. Then they go down there, and he powers his way down to the one yard line. And then because he runs the ball so well, they had Greg Olson wide open. Like he led a really impressive comeback. If he would keep his intensity level and his preparation <laughs> level the same and give it just a little bit more, he'd be a top three quarterback in the league. We would talk about him the way we do about Tom Brady and Drew Brees. Now it might not look the same, right. but he could be as dominant as those guys are. And that's what's frustrating for me because I think he could be that good if he just gave it a little bit more in, from, you know, Monday to Saturday right. in the prep work. Yeah. But he rely, you know, he's got those kind of physical gifts, so he can rely on those too. All right, let's get it over to Hannah because we got to get socially relevant. Guys, I am so happy we're talking about this subject first. So I saw this yesterday. I know you guys also saw this yesterday, and I still don't know how exactly I feel about it. So we know that there are diehard Michael Jordan fans, but then there's this guy. He took his fandom to the next level, getting a full tattoo of a Jordan 23 jersey on his back, complete with a signature right there in the middle of the two. This is dedication at its finest. So guys, help me out with this one. Is this the best thing or the worst thing you've seen all week? People just go all in with the tat. Are they addicting? I don't have one. No, no, yeah, they are they addicting. Are addicting, they right? are so addicting. That, like, that is next level. That's addiction. ridiculous. That's absurd. Not only did he have the jersey, but he had all the little holes in the jersey, like, 
That right, stuff, it mesh. hurts. It, <laughs> tattoos hurt. Like, yeah, you just, mesh. That's ridiculous. But he obviously looked like a guy who was complete head to toe. Like, you can see his arms are total sleeves. He probably has some face tattoos. To make yeah, they were now. creeping all the way up behind his ear. So he's, As addicting as they are, the face tattoos are in. Are you going to go with one? No. no. <laughs> you never will? No, never. Uh-uh. No necks, no faces. Right, uh-uh. so I'm like clean up every once in a yeah, while. Absolutely. If you want to put on a suit, you don't have to you know, roll it. Correct. I like them like, right. above, my, above my elbows. Right. Yeah, in places where I could like, – short. If this, if I was wearing this, you'd only be able to see just a little bit peeking out. That's right. It. Hannah, you had your first two not too, your fast, first tattoo not too long ago, right? Yes, and I was with Raja on this one. It hurts. Like, mine is this big. <laughs> and I the whole time I was like, I needed something to clench. I was dying. I was like, are, are you already – are you shopping for a second already? No. No, no you're done? done? One and done. <laughs> one and done. Never again. <laughs> I sometimes will have nightmares that I'm, like, covered in them, and it's, like, it's my biggest fear. Anyways, so that guy sucks for that guy. <laughs> yeah. We're staying in the NBA now. The Minnesota Timberwolves will reportedly honor the late great prince with some Purple Rain-inspired alternate uniforms this season. The uniform was leaked on Twitter this week. Check this out. Purple threads. According to reports, the team will pay a tribute to the musician who's a Minneapolis native with their City Edition uniform. So, Danny and Raja, we saw this last year, the City Edition unis typically pay tribute to the state in a way that can get pretty creative. I think these prison-inspired ones are going to be a hit in Minnesota. Are you guys on board? I, the, the heat with the tribute to Miami like subs had theirs. They were all right. Yeah. This one, I hope there's more to that because that it's pretty. It's a tight shot. You can't really see it. Right. I didn't love it. Um. I like more pink Danny, than you purple. Know it's Miami Vice, it, I, not Miami subs. No, no, it was Miami Subs. No. I purposely said that. <laughs> Go look at a Miami Subs logo. It's identical. I know, but that's inspired <laughs> that's by Miami Vice. No, it was <laughs> more. I'm with Hannah on this one. That is <laughs> Miami <laughs> Subs inspired by Miami Vice. If, listen, Miami Heat. If you guys did a, a uniform based on the Miami Subs brand, <laughs> I got a problem with you. But Miami Vice was way too long ago. Oh associated man, associated now with Miami Vice. I like. I like. <laughs> I like those. I like the Prince uniforms. Yeah, and they kind of if big I basketball see, fan. Prince Prince too. Yeah. yeah. Although he was only like 5'1". Like Shoot he's the J. Guy. He was a little Shoot guy. It. You remember the Chappelle show? Yeah. <laughs> like all the stories Charlie Murphy turned about Prince and then... Yes. But I want to see if they have the symbol tied in more. It looked like they did a little bit. Okay. I want to see how it looks like all... Because that was a little bit too tight. I want to see a wide shot of the whole jersey. I got to see the whole thing. All right, last one. You guys know how I love to talk about the craziness of Buffalo Bills tailgates. Well, much to my surprise, it's the Vikings tailgate that took headlines this week. So one poor fan took to Twitter to complain about the state of her rental car after the pregame festivities, saying, quote, well, some tailgaters burned our rental car to the ground. I'm not even kidding. She continued by saying, so yeah. Fix or it didn't happen. No, listen to this. She said, so yeah, what started as a fun trip to see the Vikings play the Jets turned into a total nightmare. Dumb Jets tailgaters set our rental car on fire in the MetLife Stadium parking lot with their freaking grill. So you guys see this photo of this car. Imagine showing this to the guy at the front desk at Enterprise. <laughs> yeah, right? I hope you picked up the insurance option or whatever yeah, it is that always hit you up for that. That's insanity. Sure like it was I, an accident? Well, see, that's what I wonder. Like, you've got to know how it played out. Prosecution there, bud. Right. Burned up my rental car? You've taken right. it. Now take Did, it like, a little car. lighter fluid just get, yeah. like, spilled? Or were they out there dousing it because they were upset about the way the game unfolded? Like, Correct. there definitely has to be more to this story. Yeah, that's not... Jets fans are see. the worst, though. They're the worst. Yeah. They, they had some problems. Like there was gate D where they used to have like one section of the stadium that was a little bit more, um, lewd than others. Uh. It was like, you stay, you, some of the stuff coming out, like videos, there was the Jacksonville fan that got knocked the bleep out. Yeah. I, that I was, that I'm was not in bringing New- my, I'm not bringing my kids any games. Yeah, no, that's Are you insane. kidding me? Fans in general are taking it too far. Now we didn't talk about it, but they're throwing beer on people in end zones now. Like the, the level of like, I don't know what I want to call it. Like, 
privilege that you feel as a fan now, right? Is it's it's ridiculous. Well, that and you combine it with alcohol, and then you're watching a sport that's violent, and so I think you just feel like I want to hit somebody, yeah. and it just takes to the next level. Hannah, are you going to stay away from escalators from now on after <laughs> with the viral video that came out from Rome yesterday? Because that was pretty weird. That was crazy. It was crazy. I know we were talking about this in the break. I will say I try to stay away from escalators already because you know. Yeah, they catch your feet. I always get nervous yes. they're going to catch your toes. I have such high anxiety with that stuff anyways. Like, even the things that move in the airport, I don't even like yeah. to go on those. I try to, like, walk faster than them. <laughs> anyway. You burn some extra calories when you go walk. Yeah. Why not? All right. Well, that's all for Socially Relevant. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Canel and Bell. Coming up next, Danny and Rajan break down the beef between Rajan Rondo and Chris Paul. All this and more coming up next. You're watching Off the Bench. <laughs> <laughs> Rasha and I getting a kick out of our little commercial we did uh to promote uh CBS Sports HQ. Uh so you have to watch it. If you're not if you're listening to the podcast, make sure you go watch us on CBS Sports HQ every morning. And if you're watching us right now on CBS Sports HQ, make sure you go download the pod anywhere you can find podcasts. Breaking news out of the NFL as we're talking. Before in the show we were talking about the uh the Giants yeah. with the Mara family, you know, uh, have a fire sale after they traded Eli Apple earlier in the show. Well, sources are confirming that uh defensive tackle Damon Harrison, also known as Snacks, Snacks. the best uh, nicknames, has been traded to the Detroit Lions. So maybe they are having a fire sale. Um they, apparently they are. I'm just texting with their GM right now trying to see. <laughs> nice. You're getting the details. If I can get something from my son. They, they got the Super Bowl this weekend. I'm trying to see what I can get since they're right. going to be they're, more dominoes to fall clearly in, in, uh, New York. Right. Janoris Jenkins, that's the next kind of big yeah. one to go. You've seen two, uh, two defensive starters moved already. Uh, which is, I think you're going to see a record amount of trades this season. Traditionally in the NFL, you don't see a lot of movement. Teams just are kind of, it's old school mindset. Yeah. I think teams now are more aggressive with more the forward thinking. Yeah. around the league. There are teams that feel like they're closer to taking that next step. I think you're going to see more movement that we've seen in a long time, which should be fun. And we've already seen Amari Cooper uh, to the Cowboys. We're, we're going to see more of those trades. Scared. Patrick Peterson's out there saying, I want out. Although the Cardinals shut that down pretty quick because he's a stud. You're a South Florida boy, right? Yeah. Scared money don't make money. That's right. Exactly. That's it. Exactly. I'd be willing to take the swing. All right. Uh, so NBA, the beef between Jean Rondo and Chris yeah. Paul continues. Like these guys are still going at it after the throws were blown. Uh, Blows were thrown. Yeah. That, yeah. That's yeah, okay. Whatever. whatever. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm trying to get to. I do. It's early. Uh, so Rondo came out. Yep. And this is interesting. This is where it gets interesting because once you see a moment come like this to a head, you see other guys start chirping and guys get more open and honest. He said, quote, everyone wants to believe Chris Paul is a good guy. They don't know he's a horrible teammate. Mm. They don't know how he treats people. So he's giving out the good on Chris Paul, which I think Chris Paul, and this is funny how it works, because he had the State Farm deal and he was the fun guy that had the funny commercial, everybody kind of likes him. I think that helps your perception and people assume you're something. And now the more you hear guys say, oh, that's not who he really is. There are, there are a lot of guys in every sport yes. who you would be surprised they're to phony. know who they really are. Yeah, like, they're guys and, that can be fraud, fraud. And not in a bad way, even. Like, right. you just would be, you know, guys put up a really good front for sponsorship dollars and for their brand, and then behind closed doors, they might not be that guy. I don't know Chris Paul other than to just speak to him um, and, and play against him. And he was one of the guys, not unlike Rondo, that would do what they had to do. Like, there was an element of... If I need to get dirty to help my team win, I'm willing to do that. I played like that. So I never really took exception when either one of those guys did it. Um, 
But I think you had Big Baby come out and say something about Chris Paul now. Um, I don't, I don't know though. I wish I had more insight into that, but I do know, and I said it before, those two, their history goes way back. Like they're, they're, yeah, that's a very years. real thing. Yeah. I love Daryl Morey tweeted out a picture of the, uh, the teapot, the <laughs> Louis, pot, kettle, calling the pot black. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty, that was pretty original right there. Yeah. Um, you, it's, I, I think the ultimate example of what we're talking about, cause I think people want to, view their sports heroes as perfect or ideal. Yeah. Tiger Woods, the biggest example. Like everybody thought he had this pristine image. He had a beautiful wife, kids. And then all of a sudden you see what's really going on behind the scenes and people were like totally shocked. I don't think you or I were probably like, you know, that's probably what like happens a lot of the time. Yeah. So I think for fans, sometimes it's hard for them to view that. And I'm sure Chris Paul fans are like defending him to the, you know, like yeah. no way he could be like that. Bill Ryder told a story yesterday on Ryder's block about how he was treated during an interview. And a lot of times you can tell the way sports stars treat the media, just a little bit of respect because we're all trying to do jobs. I'm not saying they love media. Right. At least treat them with a professional respect. And the way he treated Bill Ryder, according to story, was pretty brutal. Like, it was just rude and disrespectful, and that's not cool. Right. Like, again. It shows you a lot about a person's character. I don't I don't know Chris in that in that situation. I know, look, I, my experience with Chris was purely playing against him. And then last year, we went to a big tournament in Houston, um, and my team took a tough loss in overtime, my fifth graders. And Chris happened to be there because his youth program was there. And he came over, and he talked to all of my kids, and he took pictures with them, and he and he kind of consoled them. So I, I, I know him like that. Um I don't know him as the bad teammate, but I wasn't, it was never his teammate, so yeah. I can't really speak to that. Clearly, they got some beef. Do the Lakers get their first win? Yes. Oh.